Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. my friends who listen to Future Primitive. I'm happy to welcome Julian Rose today on the phone from England. Julian Rose is one of the pioneers of UK organic farming, commencing the conversion of his farm in 1975 He joined the Soil Association Board in 1984 and campaigned vigorously for the widespread introduction of organic farming methods at a time when this system was not known. Julian achieved notoriety when he brought a cow up to London at the Hyde Park Festival of Farming and demonstrated vociferously against a government attempt to ban unpasteurized milk. Julian has written and broadcast extensively and has written two books, Changing Course for Life, about the radical changes needed to bring new hope to society, and In Defense of Life, Essays on a Radical Reworking of Green Wisdom, a penetrating series of essays calling for urgent action to overcome the perilous state of our planet at the local as well as the global level. Importantly, he started his career in drama and so I think what I'd like you to talk about first, Julian, is your life as an actor, your career in drama, and how this set the stage for your further life. Mm, thank you very much uh, for that very, very nice introduction. And um, I feel immediately at home on your program. <sighs> And I expect I could talk for hours, but I know we have about three quarters and I'm going to try and be reasonably succinct. Good. But that's a very important question you've asked. It's at the essence, actually, of why probably I landed up where I did. When I was at secondary school and I I failed, which is very fortunate for me to get into the private school in England known as Eton, which is the top of the pyramid of the hierarchical establishment in this country, where people still go to dinner dressed up in uh, dinner jackets and bow ties, <laughs> where I failed to get into that and landed in up in a very interesting school where all sorts of types mixed uh, met each other, and it was quite small, only about 120 boys. And while I was there, I was at a loss really to know what I was going to make of my life or what I was particularly interested in or not. But a master at the school spotted
regarded me as being potentially a talent in acting. And another master um, inspired me rather in sport. And I loved rugby. It's a very British game where people rush at each other and knock each other flat and the ball flies around and you rush with it in your hands towards a line which always seems too far away and you eventually fly over it and score what's called a try. But it was teamwork that, that fascinated me and uh, that I enjoyed. And so between uh, that sort of sport and drama, something started to emerge in me uh, which gave me a clue, perhaps, about the way forward in my life, because I wasn't academic. Mm-hmm. I did pass probably the, the rudimentary levels and O-level, one or two A-levels. I didn't go to university. I headed off instead for Australia. Immediately I got out of the private school system. Now, the private school system in England is a terrifying experience, especially during the 1950s and early 60s. Yeah. Especially the first part from 8 to 12 when you're suddenly launched into another world and leave your parents having never left them before and you get, I remember, two days out of 13 weeks when you're allowed to see them. And somehow, you know, one learned how to survive. Mm-hmm. I used to, I tell people who ask me about it, how did you survive that experience? Your sensitive sort of soul, obviously. Yes. I said, I put my sensitivity in my pocket. Wow. And I learned how to survive. I didn't learn anything else, incidentally. The, the masters were all either sadists or homosexuals or sort of mm-hmm. mad, arrogant people, apart from one or two very nice souls who survived as well <laughs> in the teaching stuff. Yes. And uh, anyway, so that was the beginning. And then the secondary school was an awful lot better for the reasons I've explained. And they wanted boys to, to bring out what was best in them, which is what the word education means. It comes from the Latin word educare, mm-hmm. which means to lead out from. Of course, modern education is only about to push into. So I was very fortunate to land up in a school that took a more creative view and when I emerged out of it, I was a little bit torn uh, about which direction to go, and I was quite interested in the idea of film directing, television, and or acting. But in some respects, fate decided for me, because I'm the youngest of a family of four, um, growing up on a classic uh, British private estate, a very beautiful place in the south of England. And uh, my elder brother, would have inherited this land if he hadn't been killed in a motor racing accident when I was 16 years old. Mm-hmm. And my father, who was capably managing it, died of a stroke aged 53 three years later. Yes. And since in England hereditary property passes down the male line, my two elder sisters were not involved in owning this estate, it came to me. At the tender age of 19, I was suddenly thrust into the world of being a landowner and a landowner with the title baronet. Mm -hmm. But luckily, my mother was a very broad-minded soul and she was a very beautiful woman with a great heart. And she understood, and I think the family also understood, that obviously I needed a bit of a break before I got stuck into that. And I was given (laughs) enough leeway 
so to speak, to start trying to find myself. And I embarked on a trip to Australia. But I don't want to tell my whole life story in the program unless I'm called upon to do so. But that's, that's the introductory part. All right. So we have, we have two things here that absolutely fascinate me uh, to begin with. And one is how being an actor influenced the rest of your life. And the other part is that I've always thought that the, uh, the, true, the truth and the true calling of the aristocracy was to care for the land and therefore for the people who live on the land. Mm. So I want to know how you came back to the real and true calling of a landowner. That's very interesting, too. Yes, what happened really was that a very remarkable series of events. We can skip the time I was in Australia largely, but I I was there for about a year and a half, and I worked a little bit in Australian broadcasting, and I worked as what's called a jackaroo, which is the American version, it's called a cowboy, Uh a vast property. A vast property with thousands and thousands of cattle, and you, you mustered them on horseback and took them to water courses, and you had to be very tough and strong and typical Aussie-type cowboy. Mm-hmm. But when I was there, I met up with the Aboriginal people who were employed on this uh, uh-huh. outback, as they call it, farm. And my rapport with them was instant. Uh whereas I had no rapport with the white Australian manager of this farm who was pretty brutal, pretty crass individual who basically used the Aboriginals to do cheap work. But I always remember Stan with his big smiling face and his wonderful laughter and how he'd say, come on in in the land rover, we're going out into the bush. And with another couple of Aboriginals with him, we, we drove off into the bush and he had to probably go and mend the fence or something or dig some watercourse out. But on the way, he showed me in, in minute detail the every conceivable aspect of that, which most Western people wouldn't have the first idea what it was or that it was even, because, you know, we see desert, something looks like desert with Gigi trees and a few... Uh, big mounds of earthworms that have formed into something a little bit like concrete, and that's mm-hmm. about all. But they mm-hmm. see far more than that. And I got a wonderful introduction into the meaning of, a con- of having a connection with nature from these Aboriginal people. And then I, I, came, I returned to England just before I was 21, feeling I needed to be in England and, and to try and once again get to grips mm-hmm. with the farm. But as it happened, I felt that the pressure wasn't still on me too much, and I landed up getting a place at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art yes. in London, where I studied stage management and acting uh, over a couple of year course. And I landed up then in repertory theatre, and out of that, I landed up in experimental theatre with a troupe of actors based in America. And when that happened, everything changed for me because I had seen this land element as an enormous burden. And it's not surprising after all because actually my father unfortunately uh, had been sick and worried a lot and got depressions and drank a huge amount of whiskey and smoked.
smoked huge amounts of cigarettes and worried every day about what was going to happen if the milkman didn't show up to milk the cows. I mean, mm-hmm. the farmer didn't show up to milk the cows. And so the impression I had about the, the estate generally was that it was a big burden and big worry for everybody. And I wanted want to get as far away from it as possible. But clearly fate had a, something else in mind for me. So when I started my experimental theater um, work, in actually it was in Boston, um, the leaders of this group was a, a, a very unusual director and a very unusual wife who was, was ex-Polish, actually, and she was a poet. And they saw in me something completely different than I saw about myself. Yes. It relates to your remark. They saw me as what they called me later on the true aristocrat. We, yeah. Someone who could bring the wisdom of the land you know, into a further... Um, if you like, I could do something with it which was more creative than the standard landowner. And out of that experience and traveling to San Francisco before actually I met them and having a very important experience with the sort of hippiedom over there, which showed me wonderful things that I didn't know about myself either, I suddenly felt a great rush of energy. Mm. And when we came back, and we set ourselves up this theater company. I joined them, actually, over a 10-year period, believe it or not. We established ourselves in Antwerp in Belgium. Yes. And we started a school uh, where we not only taught from there, but we taught young children the interconnection between artistic studies and academic studies. And while we were there, a lecturer came from an organization in England called the Soil Association. And the Soil Association was set up in 1946, by a group of very far-sighted individuals led by Eve Balfour. They were soil scientists, farmers, nutritionalists, um, herbalists, uh, homeopathic doctors, mm-hmm. and, uh, and people who understood forestry. Uh, very far-sighted people, and they stood up against the great rush of agrochemical farming that took over England after the Second World War, and they said, hey, it's going the wrong way. Uh, we're destroying the biodiversity of the countryside. The pyramid of biodiversity, which should be getting bigger, is retracting in upon itself. And if it's allowed to go on for too long, it will destroy everything of value. And when I heard this message, it was actually given by a lecturer who came to Antwerp, and he only came once. And it's very fortunate that I saw the lecture. I suddenly got it. I said, that's what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> wow. And that very year, I went back across the channel, as I did many times, to and fro. And I said to my mother, we're going to go do something called organic farming. And she said, what's that, dear? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she, was already, she wasn't very uh, strong on the farming side. She was better on forestry. And she'd already put, or she'd already allowed um, experts, as they're called, uh, to inform her that the only way to make a living on the land was to use lots of nitrate fertilizers and yeah. pesticides, herbicides and fungicides. So the farm had started to go down that route for maybe three or four years. And I came straight across and I said, well, stop, stop. We're going to do something completely different. And that was the moment when I made contact with the land. And I made contact with it to start with on a part-time basis. But in the very early 1980s, I came back and took it on full time. And I taught myself farming in a very hands-on way, learning every element of it. 
um, before I actually took on people to help me. So they, they didn't, couldn't fool me by telling mm. me what I was doing was impossible. So I wonder if you would tell us what is the most precious thing that you have learnt from your absolute relationship with the land? Well, I would say um, the, the first thing I would say is the staggering generosity of nature. You know, we, we bully her, and even in organic farming, we still bully her. We still want her to grow the crops we want to grow, and we still, on the whole, rip out the ones that she wants to grow. <laughs> and yet she comes back again and again and again, and renews the fertility of the soil, and somehow life goes on. So that, I think, has always um, moved me enormously. Mm-hmm. Just last year, an extraordinary thing happened. I mean, really, things have been getting worse, as we all know, over a rather long period of time, and the biodiversity of nature has been retracting, and we have now so many pollutants in the earth soil and in the atmosphere that you wonder how nature can cope. Last year, here, where, I'm, where we're telephoning from in England, um, we had the biggest and most flourishing um, display of apples, pears, and plums that we've had in my entire life in the orchard at the bottom of my garden. <laughs> you know, it was just so extraordinary. And I just said to people, can you believe that in spite of this horrendous situation which this planet's in, she suddenly turns around and gives you this staggering display. A tree is fruited that hadn't fruited for my whole life, suddenly. I do, I do finally understand why many of us call her the mother. Yes. Yes. Yes, well said. Well, she is the mother. And, um... You know, <laughs> what can you say? Who are we, I suppose, is the bigger question, if she's the mother. Yes, um, exactly. Who are we? And in knowing who we are, how can, what can you say to the people who are listening to, um, to increase awareness of this interrelationship with the mother? issue at this moment because on a planetary level the um, situation is that the global um, agrochemical industry the seed industry etc all coming together now and fewer and fewer corporations are controlling the food chain altogether um, in fact in the, in, perhaps in the seed chain Monsanto and Cargill between them now own very nearly 60% of all commercial seeds. And the food chain is equally you know, in the command of a mixture of supermarkets and vast mm-hmm. seed and agrochemical corporations, pharmaceutical corporations, etc. So what people are ingesting today in their standard supermarkets and their Walmarts and their Tescos of this world is not food. And that's the most important thing for people to understand to start with. Not food in the sense that people living close to the soil for thousands of years experienced food. Food as a nourishing, fresh, vital, 
delicious one, mm-hmm. which uh, simply is impossible under the conditions of modern monocultural um, agrochemical farming, and indeed in the type of uh, retail units that dispense highly packaged, processed, long food mile, vitamin-reduced, no energy, pretty much dead product, which they call food. So the first thing for people to do who want to get themselves into a state of health is to recognize that they've got to get off that treadmill. Now, the way to get off it, there are a number of ways of getting off it, but the best way of getting off it is to find a way of experimenting with growing your own food. And you can start very small. I mean, if you're living in an apartment in a city, you can take a large box and put some soil in it. And then you can, as long as you have a bit of water, you can plant some seeds in it and you can water it and nurture those seeds. You don't need any chemicals, as long as the soil's reasonably fertile. And you will instantly start your um, symbiosis with nature that way. And you will watch those little seeds grow into something which you can ultimately then eat, which is a wonderful experience when you've never had it before. And you'll be amazed when you eat that. <laughs> what a rush of vigor you feel. doesn't matter what it is. As long as you pick it and stick it straight in your mouth, you'll be amazed at the difference. So if you're a little bit more ambitious than that, you can try and find other people who want to start a, a smaller um, garden unit, a, a plot of some sort. And... Uh, you find a piece of land or you rent a piece of land with them and you actually start making a more serious attempt to become semi-self-sufficient in food. And you learn from people that know how to grow food organically, ecologically, and there's plenty around that. You know, the, the days when it was a strange phenomena, which is when I started in 1975, have gone. But lots of people have this skill now and it's not an exceptional skill. It's a very simple, straightforward skill. And that way... You can do two things. You can start taking control of your destiny, which is crucial, mm-hmm. because you don't want to be a slave to the system, to governments, to corporations for the rest of your life. You want to have a life, and that means taking your destiny in your own hands and learning what that new life could be. And secondly, you need a vision. The vision is crucial. The imagination, your imagination must make a vision for you, and you must then go for that vision for the rest of your life, 100%. And everything will start changing then. Uh, it's wonderful. I mean, I've met many people who have said what I've said, and I've had the experience myself, and I think you have. And that is a set of simple answers, really. Not so simple to do, perhaps, in practice, but if you start very small, and that is what everybody should do, it is simple. So, in other words, the proximity principle works even in uh, for city dwellers. It does, and I'm delighted you, you picked up on the proximity principle, which is um, something I've been working on for a long time. I please, please tell us about ago. it. Yes, and uh, yes, it is. I mean, if you... Talking about imagination, I mean, I'm very fortunate living in a very beautiful place. Not everybody does. But in England, we have all these old market towns. Some of them are wonderful places, but the centers of them are completely dead now. They're, they're just, you know, insurance offices and uh, banks and sort of very boring tea shops with sort of hopeless food and things in them. Whereas what they once were was thrive 
amazing marketplaces with very colorful wagons of food going in and out between them and the land which immediately surrounded them. Very fertile land. And for most market squares of, of typical 10,000 people market towns, you can see the land still. There it is. You know, the breath of fresh air is coming down the streets directly from the green hills. <laughs> so in the proximity principle, my, my, my view is this, that those towns should go back to that. And if you've got 10,000 people, really all you need is about 5,000 um, acres of land surrounding that town to have a complete self-sufficiency in basic necessary foods. And you can get off the treadmill of the global marketplace and start again. So, as you say, everybody has to start with their proximity principle. <laughs> so, in other words, it's sort of like uh, being under siege in the in the old days. We, we are under siege from the... Um, from the big corporations, but yet we can gain our freedom through the proximity principle. Yes, well said. Yes. That's really true. And the um, point is that if one needs to start from somewhere, as some wise person said, you start from where you are. <laughs> yes. Not, you know, it's, it's funny, people often worry, where shall I go? Oh, no. What should I do? What sort of group of people should I... No, I say, you don't. You just start from where you are. Start from where you are. And I said, once you start taking those first steps, you'll attract certain people to you. It won't happen overnight, but it'll happen. And once you attract a few more people, it all changes because I found when I first started farming here at Hardwick on this estate, it was pretty tough because I tried to start uh, some commercial units going almost single-handed with just one person to help me. And the burden was pretty intense of trying to manage it and trying to make some money from it and trying to do it organically at a time when everything else was going the other way. But immediately, other people, other enthusiasts got involved with me. It lifted that burden and it became a pleasure. Mm. And this is the key. It's meant to be a shared operation farming. It's meant to be a community thing. There is a form of agriculture which was popular in the States and is now spreading in England called community-supported agriculture. You get the community involved in growing the food. They even put money in to help the farmer to purchase the seeds, and then they get a, a rebate on the end product, which comes off the land. And I talked to a farmer very recently in Wales who just two years ago put his farm into this system. And he said, change my life. Mm. You know, I, I just feel liberated. All the worries have gone. I, I'm sharing all this now with other people who are committed. And commitment's essential, of course. You can't play with this game. It's, mm -hmm. It demands total commitment. So that goes back, doesn't it, when you look into the past, you see. The, more, the further back in the past, the more and more you see that it was always community. It wasn't about profit, money. It wasn't about packaging and, and processing and sending things off to the other end of the world. It was about communities looking after themselves and looking after their needs. And we are going to have to get back to that because there is no other future for this world. And I use the word sustainable future, a very overused word, but yeah. actually it means something which can be sustained in the long term and not for just short-term gain. So, yes, indeed, 
proximity and people put together, committed people, is a sort of ticket for getting started and can turn into a very wonderful thing if it works out. And also it takes care of one of the greatest uh, ailments that us humans have, which is uh, an unbearable sense of loneliness, if it's about relationship, as you say. Well, you re- you remind me of, of um, Tony Juniper, whom we um, I interviewed a few months ago, and he wrote this book called Money Does Grow on Trees. And so I'm thinking about all the people who lost their estates in England, and obviously you, you still have yours through yes. community. I do still have it. Now... On the, looking at it from the perspective of the total estate, yeah, the estate's about 900 acres of land, and it's half forestry, half farmland. It's very it's hilly and stony and difficult to farm, very beautiful, right on the edge of the river, and hills rising up behind, Chiltern Hills, very ancient uh, hills. And um, the estate has around about 25, 26 uh, dwellings on it, mostly very old cottages. Some, some of them are 600 years old. And it has one very large um, Elizabethan house, which is the family home where I was born. I was actually born in the house, in a room, a very, very extraordinary room, very beautiful, ornate room with, with oak panelling, amazing plaster ceiling, very ornate plaster ceiling, where my mother tells the story before she died, when she died about five years ago, age 93, she said, you know, I, I wanted to have a home birth with you. You were actually my fifth child. She had another son who died at six months. So I asked the workman to come and help move my bed into this room. And I asked them to put it under the head of Julius Caesar. And she said... I was preparing lunch for the family, and I felt I needed to go and lie down. So I said to the family, I'm going upstairs to lie down, and I'll come back down later on and maybe uh, be able to serve the dessert. So she went upstairs, and I was born. She said, you just popped out. Now, that was on a day when there was the most wild storm there had been in about 50 years. And the doctor couldn't make it. He got caught in the snowdrift. But the midwife got there luckily earlier. So the midwife delivered me. And my mother tells the story that she then went downstairs and served the dessert. (laughs) Amazing. Amazing woman. Beautiful birth. Oh, gosh. So extraordinary. I I, I don't even... I, I, I try... I don't... I don't really tell that story, but um, somehow it it was drawn out of me. I do want to say, what was the dessert? Ah, quite. (laughs) Well, I was too young to know that. (laughs) But what happened once I came back and really started taking on, of course, the organic farm is I I also started having to take on the whole estate gradually. My mother still went on with the woodlands for quite a long time and was able to deal with land agents about housing rents and all this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But slowly I I took on everything. At a certain point I took over the management of the whole estate. 
And what I felt was this. I felt, you know, these are old colonial um, empires of their own right, and they're built on the, the bones of people who the British mistreated very badly in many parts of the world, and the riches were stolen and brought back. Mm. And many of these great estates were built on those riches, so I knew what I'd inherited wasn't exactly a model of social or humanity, and wasn't a very good example of uh, how how one can close the wealth gap between rich and poor. So I thought, how can I, how can I manifest something to stand this estate to start standing for something completely different than that? Yes. And I've started going by um, when we were renewing and fixing up these old cottages, many of which incidentally had outside toilets, and um, most of them did, and at that time, in about 1975, 1980, and we gradually... Uh, had to improve them, the cottages because they were very damp inside and people didn't mind living that way in those days, but unfortunately modern people don't like living that way. So we had to install heating and bring the toilets and doors and spend a great deal of money investing in these cottages and getting them up to a point where you could then rent them out again. And the dilemma came at that point because I wanted people there in a sense of community to help on the land and to start their own small businesses and to be foresters and all that. And yet, in order to create an income to manage the place and to, to repair the old Elizabethan house where I was born, which is grade one listed building, which demands rather strict attention, and these beautiful old cottages, etc., you had to bring in a decent income. No other way. Mm-hmm. So what I devised was a, was a sort of... I think it's a fairly logical system. I don't doubt that others are doing the same thing, which is I rented the most valuable cottages out at proper commercial rents to people who didn't necessarily understand what was going on around them. But I rented the other cottages out at half the commercial rent. And in those cottages, I put people who wanted to work on the land and work in the woods and uh, wanted a long-term connection with nature. Mm. And that way, I, I've been able to act like a type of benign dictator, I suppose you'd say. Yes. And steer the estate slowly, because it does take years, you can't rush the process, into something which is over about 30-year period, finally now, in the last few years, started to feel like a series of extended families who now talk to one another, share notes, and respect each other by and large because I didn't want to start what's called an intentional community. Mm-hmm. I wanted to start what I thought were essential enterprises and then let the people meet each other at the organic time and place for that to work. And there's a big difference between that and starting an intentional eco-village or something like that. And that way, um, slowly but surely, we... we uh, made progress with not only the organic side of the farming on the estate, but also creating something of a, uh, a social agenda whereby the um, ability and the joy of living in beautiful old places isn't just the right of those who've got a lot of money. And it's actually essential for people who are going to do the work 
which is going to mean that people who do have a lot of money have something to eat and drink, which is worth eating and drinking. And so you find yourself, if you're a landowner in this way, having to perform a sort of multitude of balancing acts constantly. And if you put it in more poetic terms, and you look at it in a more cosmic spirit, I say it's like walking down the line between the yin and the yang sign, the divides the yin and the yang in the yin-yang sign, uh, balancing on that little tightrope. And actually, it's thrilling, because you are genuinely you know, being in, put in a position where you can create change. And if you get it right, it's enormously rewarding. If you get it wrong, it's hugely frustrating. <laughs> sometimes very painful. And of course, we went through an enormous amount of big problems. But out of them, I, I learned each time something. And now, speaking to you now at this point in my life, um, I find that it's a joy to come back and be here and, and keep that operation going. As my son and my daughter, who are now 28 and 30, are just beginning to get involved themselves. Well, it sounds like you, um, you, first of all, I want to encourage people to read your book because um, it's poetically beautiful as well as extremely practical. Mm. And you have a, you describe a dream where um, there's a collapse of the present uh, system and the present ways of of living at this time and you run into a a young girl comes to you and she says well uh, what would you do if you were to take over at this time so um, as we get to the end of this conversation I'd like you to zero in on the, 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 the purely human side of this what have you discovered, Julian Rose, um, is the formula for getting along with other human beings? Well, first of all, you must respect everybody. You, can't, you mustn't start with a preconceived view of what someone's like, even if you've read the impossible or whatever it might be. You have to start with a fundamental respect and, and with the belief that every human being is a spiritual being and is has good in them. And I mean, it, they do. I don't think there's any doubt about that. It's just that in far too many cases, it's buried. It's buried on layers and layers and layers of false propaganda, bad education, misconcepts, laziness, uh, fascination in, in superficial issues. Mm-hmm. But underneath it, the spirit is there, if it can come out. So you start by respecting whoever it is that you meet in life and uh, believing that they probably got something to teach you. And actually, almost everybody who I've worked with and met, and even that's in theater work and in the farming work and in all the various things I've, I've gone through, I can't think of many people who've been a completely, what I would call a completely dead loss. Um, there's always been something or other you can learn from them, and they can learn from you. And within that, uh, we know that our life
quite brave in the way you approach people. You, know, you can draw on deeper sides in yourself and challenge people. Don't be frightened of challenging people. Don't just conform to the standard mode of, of the culture and be very polite and rather shy or rather humble or whatever it is for too long. Uh, come out and speak your mind because that tends to spark a similar thing in other people. And they start uh, coming alive if you can be alive. And all of a sudden, you know, a rather gloomy landscape starts glittering with all sorts of colors. <laughs> and life is like that. Uh, life can be very dark, but it can very quickly change to being very light. Very light and very quickly change to be very dark. And we all have those two sides in us. Every man has a the female and the male in themselves. Every woman has male, female and male. It's a relatively small difference that actually kicks us into being men or women. So even between men and women, there's an enormous amount of common, commonality to share. And certainly the message which I would say to other people is don't ever abandon humanity because you think it's hopeless. Because we are a collective, a collective of people on this planet. There's a huge level of what you might call the collective unconscious which guides us all, which is very, very deep. And somehow or other, uh, draw upon the qualities that both you and the person you're engaged with no doubt has and try and turn around something which is seen as just being ordinary and boring and make it into something not ordinary and rather exciting and see what happens. It's a big experiment, the whole thing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Julian, um, unfortunately for me, we've come to the conclusion of this part of our conversation. So I just want you to take a moment and say a few words in closing. Well, indeed. Um, this is an enormously challenging time. This is a time of very remarkable change. It's unique, I think, even in the realm of thousands upon thousands of years. Well, Earth is passing through an extraordinary time in cosmic terms. We are being blessed with extraordinary energies from higher forces. If we open ourselves to those energies, and we are those energies, mm. except, as I said before, we are crowded with things which aren't. If we can drop those things off bit by bit and open ourselves to those very powerful cosmic energies which are guiding this planet now, we will be strong enough and capable enough and full enough of joy to tackle any of the problems which are coming in the next few years. And we will find another life and we will find what it really means to be human. Thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate your words. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be on your program. Mm -hmm.